There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Miner. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action this week is Brandy Tuck, the Executive Director at Portland Homeless Family Solutions, an organization empowering homeless families with children to get back into housing and to stay there long term. Brandy, we're excited to have you on. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to learn more about your organization. And I understand that you have the pleasure, I, I, I guess, let me let me just ask the question. I understand that you serve on a board with Centauri. How is that? It's a pleasure. Yes, it's a pleasure. It's an honor and a pleasure. And yes, Centauri is actually one of our co-chairs this year. So I just love being on that board. Very, very, very cool. Well, Brandy, it sounds like uh, it sounds like your organization is growing like crazy. You just had a successful, looks like a capital campaign. I think that you are staffing up, and you've been with the organization for eleven years or so. But if you would just just talk us through your career path. Sure. Yeah. Well, it started back at the University of Florida, go um, where I was on my way to become an attorney. I was going to law school, and I. Uh, had this, I had had that intention since I started college. And then I was very involved in leadership and on campus and then, you know, involved in community service activities. And one spring break, all of my leadership and community service friends were going on this alternative spring break trip called Florida Alternative Break. And I was like, nobody's going to go to the Bahamas with me for real. So uh, I guess I have to go on one of these. I guess I have to go on one of these trips, too. So I signed up for one of these trips. There were 11 different issue areas to pick from. None of them called to me. It was education, animal rights, HIV and AIDS, women's issues, environment, homelessness and poverty, all kinds of different issues. And I didn't want to go to any of them, so I just picked homelessness and poverty because it seemed like the least of all of them. And so then I, of course, got on this trip, and it was with 12 complete strangers. We went to Atlanta, Georgia for our spring break to do community service with families and individuals experiencing homelessness. And that trip changed my life. I knew halfway through it, of my life, I wanted to work with people experiencing homelessness, and I had this big breakdown where I decided I was going to drop out of college and just stay there in Atlanta at that shelter and help kids that were there. the crying and tears and friends convincing me, I decided, okay, well, I guess I'll go back to school and I'm going to do something about this one day. I'm going to change my focus. I'm not going to go to law school anymore and I'm going to do something about homelessness. So I did that, um, went to school, went back and just completely refocused, um, then graduated, moved out to Portland, just kind of on a whim because it was really cool, uh, and then started volunteering at this little shelter here called the Public Family Shelter. Two years into my volunteering, uh, when I was 24 years old, their executive director position opened up, and I said, oh my gosh, this is my dream job. This is what I want to do, and of course, I had, was a very involved volunteer at the time, uh, So I, but I was 24, and I never thought anyone would let me be in charge of this little shelter, but I applied, and then they did. Uh, let me be in charge of this little shelter. Nice. At the time, it was not a nonprofit. It was just a little goose hollow. 
that was open during the winter months, just November through April. It was an annual operating budget of $78,000, and there were four part-time staff, including me. And now today, uh, almost 12 years later, we have an operating budget of about $3.2 million. We have 42 staff, and we're helping a lot of families move back into housing and escape homelessness. So it's just been a, a privilege and an honor to get to work at the same nonprofit for the last 12 years and grow it from this little tiny shelter to this organization that's really redefining uh, what it means to provide shelter to families. Wow. So, um, Brandy, we were actually talking about this with uh, Jamie Smith, who's the executive director of YNPN National, when she was in Phoenix last week. But can you talk to us about what kind of the history of the homeless problem in Portland and why it's so so harrowing? Yeah, well, and it's really the history of homelessness in America. We haven't always had homelessness in America or not. This is not normal. We, the first time we had homelessness in America was the Great Depression, right? It was the first time in American history that regular individuals and families were experiencing such extreme poverty that it ended up resulting in homelessness. We had those pictures of the kids, you know, sitting on those stoops of the little shanty town buildings. And so the federal government enacted a couple of pieces of legislation to bring the country out of the Great Depression, including the New Deal. And, you know, we gave people mortgage industry, we gave people homes, we gave people land, we gave people education, we created tons and tons of jobs to do infrastructure building, and we created the Federal Housing Authority. And we started pumping about $89 billion a year into the Housing Authority to create and maintain a national infrastructure of housing. And so they created millions and millions of units of housing all over the country where people who couldn't afford to own their own homes or couldn't afford market rent could at least afford to live. And all the way from the 40s until the 80s, homelessness went away because we had a national infrastructure of housing and we had a protection in place for people who were very, very poor. And then in the 80s, the federal government slashed the budget of the housing authority from $80 billion a year all the way down to $20 billion a year. And the result of that was that this national infrastructure of housing that we had built and maintained over the last 40 years fell into disrepair and it was torn down. It wasn't managed well. It was torn down. We think of the projects when I was growing up, remembered the projects being torn down and our country was celebrating that we're tearing down these terrible places to live. We're tearing down the projects, right? But what we were actually doing was tearing down our nation's infrastructure of housing. And so just like if we didn't invest in our roads or our bridges or our courthouses for 40 years, we would not have a federal transportation infrastructure, right? Well, we haven't invested in our housing infrastructure in 40 years. And so now we no longer have an infrastructure of housing. So these days we simply don't have enough units for every family and individual who needs a place to live. A very conservative estimate is about 5 million units nationwide that we're short. I would say it's much, much greater than that. But we have not invested in a national infrastructure of housing for 40 years. What the government did invest in over the last 40 years is all of these emergency response systems to the now growing number of people who don't have homes who are now experiencing homelessness. The country's second epidemic of homelessness began in the 1980s as a result of this elimination of the federal national federal housing infrastructure. 
And then they built up emergency response systems, things like shelters and nonprofit agencies that help with housing and emergency rooms and the jail systems. And so we now have a homeless crisis that is just being exacerbated by not having this federal infrastructure of housing. So, yeah. Oh, it's, that makes sense to uh, help, helps to understand why, uh, why the problem exists that, 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 that we have. So the federal numbers that there's, that there were 5 million units short across the country. Um, but just taking a step back when, when you started your, your budget was $78,000 and now it's 3.2 million people and you have 42 staff. How has the need changed over that 12 years that has it always yeah. been pretty steady and, and, and you've just been able to grow your organization to, to meet it? Yeah, the need has always been far, far, far greater than our community has services to provide. And so everyone in Portland, Oregon, and everyone around the country in cities that are experiencing homelessness and housing crisis, everyone can see that there's a homeless state of emergency here. There's people camping, there's people on the streets, there's just people everywhere living outside without homes. But what everybody doesn't see is how many people who experience homelessness are kids and their parents. Last school year, uh, the Oregon Department of Education reported that 4,300 students experienced homelessness in Multnomah County, which is the county we're in here in Portland, in Multnomah County alone. 4,300 students experienced homelessness in one school year. That doesn't count their little brothers and sisters or their parents. Consistently over a decade, half the kids in our shelters for homeless families have been under five. So I argue wow. another 4,000 little kiddos out there. This is 8,000 only kids who are experiencing homelessness in one nine-month school year. And so the, the problem is, is huge and vast. And we have, historically, we provided eight families with children shelter a night. Um, And so you can see if there's these, you know, 4,000 families that are experiencing homelessness, we're helping eight at a time. Uh, And so we have really tried to grow our services over the year to just try to tackle and meet any bit of this need. We're in a homeless family collaborative, which is eight organizations that help people experiencing homelessness, families experiencing homelessness, get back into housing. And a couple of us provide shelter as well. We also share coordinated intake for our system. There are 1,300 families on a wait list waiting to get into one of our programs. So the need is great and vast. And uh, the housing industry, you know, there's we have a less than 2% vacancy rate here in Portland. So there's not a lot of housing available. And it's a real challenge. That is a real challenge. All right. So tell us a little bit about how your program works. I think that... A little bit of research you have a looks like a maybe a four-pronged approach with the housing first yes. program if you could start with that that would be great yeah so our mission our primary focus is helping families experiencing homelessness get back into housing we do so in our housing first program we help families who are literally experiencing homelessness move back into housing most of its market rate housing Um, Last year, we helped 288 families move back into housing amongst all of our programs. That's 976 kids and their parents. 
And then we provide rent assistance, financial assistance to families to stabilize for about a year. And we provide long-term case management to families so that they have help with service navigation or trauma recovery or whatever they need help with. We're there to support them. We also provide homeless prevention for families who are about to be homeless. We help them prevent their homelessness before it even starts. This not only is way more cost effective, but it also is way provides way less trauma and disruption in the lives of the families and especially the kids. So a prevention is one of our, our big focuses right now and really trying to move more upstream and get families before the crisis happens. The Federal Reserve did a study in 2017 that showed that 40% of Americans couldn't come up with $400 in times of emergency if they needed to. So if you have blown tires or you have a medical emergency or something is going on, 40% of our country doesn't have a backing backup savings to be able to come up with $400. So those are the families that our prevention program is targeting. Stop it before homelessness occurs, before the housing is lost, because you can really save a lot of trauma, a lot of time, and a lot of resource for families um, who don't have to go through homelessness. But when you do experience homelessness, we have emergency shelters. We provide a couple of shelters for about 50 families a night. It's about 200 people a night, moms, dads, and kids only. Um, and so uh, we are trying to really redefine the way that shelter is provided to families experiencing homelessness through using an approach called trauma-informed care um, that is a program practice that lots and lots of, of organizations around the country use. And it's a really great, um, it uses a trauma lens to understand behavior through the lens of trauma and how that affects the brain and, be, and tries to tailor services to be healing for people rather than harmful. But also we have just learned, we just bought a new shelter building. We did a big capital campaign and bought a new campus for our headquarters and our shelter. And we've learned that you can actually incorporate trauma-informed care and healing into the built environment, into the architecture and design of a building. And so that's what we're doing right now. We are remodeling the bigger of our two buildings on our new campus to be a trauma-informed design building that will serve 26 families at a time um, in their own private bedrooms that aims to do three things. It aims to build dignity for families, to restore power to families, and then to promote autonomy so that families can be autonomous and really live their own lives. So that's what we're really excited about right now is, is trying to prove that there is a different way to provide shelter that's much more healing for families. The research shows that trauma-informed Shelters that incorporate trauma-informed design and architecture actually lead to better outcomes. Things like shorter shelter stays and greater success moving into housing. So we are really excited to be able to, to start having the data to show that this approach works. Wow. Wow, that's impressive. So Brandy, you've- We're um... really excited. <laughs> You've obviously dedicated your career and much of your life to uh, tackling the problem of homelessness in your nonprofit. But one of the things we love to ask our, our guests is what, are the, what would you say are the three biggest things you've learned over the past three years? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I have this, I've developed over the last three years, this kind of personal leadership motto that has three components to it. And they are, and I say, this is what I have learned. These three things are the three biggest things I've learned. And it's curiosity, compassion, and courage. 
And so I, I call these out because I think this is, I use them every single day in my life and in my job and in my uh, career. Curiosity to approach everything with non-judgment. Brene Brown talks about, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves. And so trying not to tell stories to ourselves and just open, you know, approach things with an open-ended um, look and non-judgment and, and try to, to learn and gather all the information you need before making an assessment compassion in our work and our job for our staff for myself for everyone in our world and then courage to do the really hard things we are working in an environment that is so challenging and there's so many politics involved in, in trying to just help homeless families with children right and so having the courage to do the right things make the hard decisions have the hard conversations and especially i mean for this for me especially this comes out in our in our equity at work we view racism as a slash the primary cause of homelessness. In addition to not having a, a national infrastructure of housing, we have set up intentional systems that that place communities of color and people with disabilities and LGBTQ populations, but especially people of color um, in a position where they are not able to accumulate property and accumulate wealth and it leads to such greater homelessness in those communities. And so having the courage to stand up and do what's right from an anti-racist lens as well. So curiosity, compassion, and courage. Well, those are very, very powerful things. Thanks for sharing that as well. Yeah, I'd like to dig yeah. a little bit deeper into um, what you were just covering, but I, I, I would like to, to circle back on the, the homelessness prevention piece um, and certainly, I, that resonates with me that 40% of Americans wouldn't be able to come up with $400 in cash. That's a statistic I'm unfortunately very well aware of in, in my work. So certainly, if you're going to have a successful intervention, you need to be curious and compassionate and then have, have the courage to, to reach out and help these people. But how do they find your program or, or, or how do you find them? Yeah, great question. So we are part of the homeless family system here in Multnomah County in Portland. And so we have a number 211. Almost every, I think every state has this, that it's kind of like a 911 or a 411. You can dial 211 and it connects you to a hotline that has information and resources and referrals and families can get right on to our wait list. From there, they can also make an appointment to get an intake in our winter shelter for tonight. And that's how they get on all of our housing lists. And so we do a, an, a vulnerability assessment on that initial phone call to see what people need. And if we identify the prevention pieces, you are still in housing. You have not yet lost your housing. They go immediately to our prevention team. And our prevention team is able to act within 24 hours to be able to get these families to stay in their homes. They do incredible work um, and it's pretty phenomenal that they are so responsive to our families and they have to be because when families get 72 hour eviction notices from their landlord, and that's mostly what we're dealing with, hmm. 72 hour eviction notices, they only have three days to either get their rent paid or get their utilities turned back on or they're kicked out of their housing and their door is locked. Um, so we have to really be responsive to those families. Uh, and so our prevention team really does a great job. Yeah, that's a terrifying scenario to, to especially, well, it's terrifying no matter what, but especially if you have little kids. Um, are there statistics? There's statistics for everything, so that's a dumb question. But once a family does become homeless, are they more apt to fall into a cycle of that? 
Well, here in Multnomah County, yes. So because there is such need, it's about a year wait time from the time you begin to experience homelessness until you can get on a housing case manager's caseload to help you get back into housing. So the a year of experiencing homelessness exact, exacerbates the situation just so, so much. Even if it was a short-term episode of homelessness, a couple weeks to a couple of months, those impacts are much easier to address and overcome than a year. By the time a year comes, you have lost all your important documents. The kids have not had stable school for a year. The parents have not had stable employment. I mean, it just, there's, there's a study out there called the Adverse Childhood Experiences, ACEs, study that proves what these kinds of experiences do to the brain, to development, to the life cycle of disease and disability. I mean, if when you experience homelessness, you have an earlier mortality rate. You have a lower mortality rate. There's the average length of uh, life for an American is 72 years, except if you've experienced homelessness and then it's 49 years. And so there's, there's research and studies out there to show that this kind of, of extreme stress on the brain, especially the child's developing brain, leads to disease and early death. So it's really imperative that we stop homelessness before it even starts. And if it does occur, we try to minimize the amount of time that people are, are experiencing homelessness. Brandy, I'm, um, I'm interested in, so you have all the interventions and you have, you know, it works, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, nonprofits and philanthropy can only do so much. So what can we what do you feel are the true levers to getting ahead of this? Is it investing more into the Federal Housing Authority or what what will make it, you know, what, what will alleviate this um, pressure on our system? Yeah, well, two things. Ending racism, <laughs> right, which is a really big task because so many of our systems are intentionally built to oppress communities of color so that they can't escape deep poverty and homelessness. And then the other piece of it is the federal housing infrastructure. You know, we, our mayor here, Mayor Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland right now, he gets blamed every single day in the media for the homeless problem here in America. And I'm sure many of you in cities in Phoenix or wherever you are, that your mayors are also getting the brunt of this blame and this looking to the mayors for a solution for our cities. And the mayors are not ever going to be able to solve this because it's going to take an incredible amount of resources and organizing at a federal level to solve this national crisis. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I think it will take federal action. This is a pretty kind of radical idea out there, but so the federal government distributes housing subsidies to people all over the country every year, right? And you would assume that most of those subsidies went to people who were experiencing poverty, right? Well, the fact is two thirds of the subsidies given out by the federal government come in the form of the home interest mortgage deduction. So two thirds of the housing subsidies in this country are going to homeowners who are arguably the last people who need housing subsidies, right? Only one third of our housing subsidies go to people who are experiencing poverty. And so if we just reformed the home interest mortgage deduction and capped it at $500,000 of assessed value and capped it at two homes. So most of us, 
only have one or two homes, and most of us don't have million-dollar homes, right? So most of America wouldn't be affected by a cap of the home interest mortgage deduction. Wealthy people would, right? And so we could shift that balance, and rather than giving our housing subsidies to wealthy homeowners, shift them to people experiencing poverty. That right there could solve our national housing crisis, um, but it'll be very hard to do because there's some very powerful lobbies, right, that are going to fight against that. So, and that solution uh, is already out. So that's already out there and on the table. It's just getting that solution enacted. Yes, that's right. Got it. Yeah, I have to imagine. I think that the majority of us do feel like politics is such a frustrating thing, and we're not trying to do the kind of work that you are. So. When you're out there trying to do such important work and you're having to, to muddle through politics, it must make you want to pull your hair out. So, yes. <laughs> well, perhaps that uh, leads us nicely into our, 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 our next question. Um, if you could make one plea, knowing that the entire world would hear it, what, what, what plea would you make? Yeah, I would make a plea that we remember in all of these conversations that we're having about homelessness, about the environment, about the national debt crisis, about all of these conversations that we're having, just remember the kids. There are so many students, so many kiddos in our communities who need so many resources to be able to move into the next level, right? To move into the next generation to take on those challenges. And I mean, we talk here in Portland locally, we talk all only about the people on the streets that we can see visibly, and we're forgetting that there are so many kiddos that are in really precarious situations right now that if we don't intervene, our country will really be hurt from that. And I mean, this is, a, this is our next generation. So I just, I hope that folks can remember to focus policies and solutions that will be helpful for the children. Um, and, and then again, I think remember that this is a national, homelessness is a national issue and we're really gonna have to work together and band together if we're gonna solve it. It won't be solved at the individual community level. Amen, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Brandy, how can people get involved with your group? How, how can they help? Yeah, we have a lot of ways that people can help, including just becoming educated. We have all of this that I've talked about today, the history and causes of homelessness, a lot of information about race and racism all on our website, um, which is pdxhfs.org. Um, you can also get engaged in your local community by volunteering. I mean, I think the biggest thing to remember is I get the question all the time, what should I do when people ask me for money? What should I do when people are panhandling and asking for help? The biggest thing that you can do is just treat someone as if they're a person. You don't have to give them money. You don't have to give them food. It's good to give food. It's good to have snacks. It's good to have water, socks, all those things. But if you don't have that or you can't have that, just give people human dignity. Give people relationships. Look them in the eye. Acknowledge them. Say hello. Say, I'm sorry, I can't, but I hope you have a really good day today. And you would be surprised at how far that goes with people. That's really great. That's as simple and like that doesn't cost you anything. It's just being a good person to another human being. I love that. Yeah, that's all we really need. I love it. Well, Brandy, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. It was awesome to, to learn about the great work that you're doing. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Um, Goodness, anything else? No, you know, I don't think so. I would just say 
Um, so, I mean, certainly I've talked a little bit about the anti-racism stuff. I think that's such a huge piece in our country to acknowledge that we are living in a white supremacist community and that that is the cause of so many of our social issues like homelessness and that if we can band together and be anti-racist, um, we will make a lot of progress. Centauri, anything else? No, covered everything that I wanted to talk about. Thank you again, Brandy. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Brandy. And thanks, as always, for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll list the uh, the website and the notes of the show, as well as the other resources that, that Brandy mentioned. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real. <laughs>